Thessalonians. We've got two readings, and the first one is on page 14 in the Church Bibles, and it's Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. So, Genesis 13. So, Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among his cities of the plain and pitched his tent near, near, tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And the second reading is Jude, chapter, oh, just Jude, on page 1231. And we're reading verses 1 to 10. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Although you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. 
little letter written by Jude that we're looking at over these, these few weeks. Page one, two, three, one. I was getting teased about this slide with all the plus minus times and divided sign there uh, during the week. Somebody said, is it meant to refer to the Ed Sheeran albums? I wouldn't really know about that. Apparently those signs are on them. It was just riffing slightly on the teaching thing, which is a very tenuous link. That's why it's like school, I suppose. Anyway, we're thinking about... It's not very good. <laughs> I'm not very good at design stuff. Anyway, it was, it was done with your best interests at heart. Um, so feel loved because of that. Um, uh, we are thinking this book, you know, with this title, Teaching Christians How to Fight. Uh, but we've seen already, it, it's an unusual fight. Um, not, not on that slide just yet, just back a little bit. Um, it, it is, uh, it's an unusual fight in, in that, Jude, by the time we get to the end, it's a fight that's intended uh, to be merciful. If you were here last week, you remember that Jude has said it's a fight for the faith. And if we click on that slide now... And by the faith, he doesn't mean so much that we believe the, uh, the message, but the, the content of the message. This gospel message, if you like, what, uh, that God has made known in the Lord Jesus, that came to the apostles, they were the eyewitnesses, those 12. Uh, they were with the Lord Jesus. They were authorized by him, if you if you like, to, to pass on this gospel message, and it's been written down, and it's come to us that way. We have it in the Scriptures. That's what Jude's meaning by the faith, this, this message that we, we have. And we said last week that as we looked at the first five verses, it, it's a fight you can't walk away from. Jude says it's just too important. When he says contend for the faith, it's a strong word he uses. And this evening we'll see it's a fight against people who are all talk. Lots to say. Uh, job interviews uh, can be scary, can't they? Uh, those of you who watch The Apprentice, uh, I, I mean, it, it just makes me cringe too much. But if you, if you watch The Apprentice, I imagine some people watch it really for that, that, those final couple of episodes when, when the interviews happen, and it's just delightful to watch in some ways. The, people are put through the mill. Uh, but if you watch The Apprentice, you know interviews can be scary. Uh, the inter interviews are designed to, to sort out those who are all talk, really, from those who've got a bit of substance about them. Uh, as I understand it, I didn't have... Uh, one of these in a recent uh, job, my recent, most recent job interview, but many now have logic tests in them you've got to do. See how good you are at spotting patterns, problem solving. He, here's a quick one for you. See if you can spot what comes next. Uh, sorry if seeing the screen is hard for you, but if you can see it, go on. You like to put your brain to work. It's not a very difficult one. You got it. I'm not going to tell you the answer. Um, anyway, logic test that. You can work it out. I, actually, will I tell you the answer? I think the answer is... Oh, no, I can't even remember it now. Never mind. You can work it out later. Um, I think it's B. That's the answer. I'm just going to say that. Look, uh, you, you get the way those things, those words, logic test. Can you spot patterns? Uh, can you work out things? And that, that, that's really helpful. Jude, 
Uh, Jude also seems to think it will be really helpful for us as we read the Bible if we notice some patterns and ask what comes next. And he does it in our reading. If you've got it open in front of you, he does it here with three Old Testament stories. They might not be your favorites. He's gone for uh, something from uh, the Exodus. Uh, Something about angels from just before the story of Noah. And something about these two great Old Testament cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're not happy stories. They might not make your top list, but uh, the thing to notice as you consider them um, is, look, these three, three things, if you like, a little progression here. What position were they in? I think this is what's in Jude's mind. What position were they in? What did they do? And what happens next? The Exodus, that first one in verse 5 that he refers to, you could find stories about that back in Numbers 14 in the Old Testament, but it's unbelief in the desert. God had rescued his people from Egypt. They'd been slaves. He'd set them free. And you think, what a secure position to be in. You had been a slave, and you've been rescued powerfully by God, and He's led you out. What a secure position. But they grumbled, and they deliberately refused to believe God's Word. They would not stick with what He said. They gave up, if you like, their position of safety, and it ended in disaster for them, destruction. Well, the angels that are mentioned in verse 6. It's rebellion in heaven. The the story comes probably from Genesis 6. They had position and authority. God-given places, responsibility. But that wasn't good enough. They rebelled. They decided not to keep their position. Do you notice the way Jude writes it? Verse 6. They didn't keep their positions, so now God is keeping them. Did you see that, the way he writes it? God is keeping them for judgment. And then the third little story, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. We first hear about them. That's why we had that first reading uh, from Genesis 13 that Mary read for us. We first hear about them in Genesis 13, and we're told they are cities, they are cities built on a beautiful land. They're in a delightful place. We're told that it was well-watered like the garden of the Lord. You understand what, what that's saying at this point in Genesis. Moses, who writes this down, we're only at chapter 13, and he's harking back to Eden. Eden has been lost, and yet he says there was a place around Sodom and Gomorrah, and if you want to know what it was like, he said it was, it was almost as good as Eden again, almost as beautiful as that. They were living in a paradise. That's the position they were in. Like Cambridge, but even better. I was talking to somebody this morning who said they're they're fairly new to Cambridge and they still walk around it. And it just takes their breath away. They love the buildings and the streets and the countryside. It's a delightful place to live in. Sodom and Gomorrah, what, what comes to mind when you think of them? Maybe you know the other parts of the story about them. But at this point, they're they're in a paradise. That's the position they're in. Did they give themselves to thanking God? Not a bit of it. Jude tells us, verse 7, they gave themselves to sexual immorality. 
perversion. They took the stuff from God and they just lived ignoring him. And eventually God said, enough is enough, and the cities were destroyed with fire. And you think, look, why is Jude in this little letter? Why is he telling us this? Why did he put these things before us? I, I think it's pretty clear what the protagonists in each story do. The, the details differ, but the issues are kind of the same. They will not listen to God. They determine to live listening only to themselves. And Jude's saying, look, that's a pattern of life with a long history. But the question with patterns, it remains the same, doesn't it? You've still got to ask, what comes next? If you live that way, and it doesn't end well for any of them. Now, if you know your, your Old Testament, if you know these Old Testament stories, and you wanted to be a bit picky with Judah, I suppose, at this point, you could read these things and, and think, particularly if you like things to be neat and in order, you, you could read this bit of Judah and say, Jude, why have you ordered them like this? You've done them in the wrong order. Why did you, why did you do that? It, it should have been it should have been kind of angels first. That's the way the chronology go. Angels first, then Sodom and Gomorrah, then Exodus. But you've done Exodus first, then the angels, then Sodom and Gomorrah. Get it right, Jude. Check out the references. Why does he mix them up? I think it's deliberate. And I think it's because he's also got a slightly different order in mind. There's another pattern he wants to show us. And it's about what comes next. If you live life refusing to listen to God, what comes next? The first story he mentions says, you'll eventually face physical death. Do you notice that? In that first story about the Exodus, they were destroyed. They, they, they died physically. But then you go, but what comes next? And the second, second story says, you'll be kept for judgment on the great day. This life's not the end. At the end of this life is not the end of life. And that is really good news, isn't it? It is good to know that. It is good news. World leaders who start wars, the powerful who exploit the weak, the bully in the workplace, the harsh man with a temper, the controlling or critical woman, the person who misuses sex, the greedy person, the gossip who ruins relationships. You and me uh, we're heading for that day. And when you get your head round that and you can bring yourself to ask, what comes next? This third story says, for those who have lived saying, I will take God's gifts, but live ignoring Him. I will refuse to turn to Him as He graciously offers to save me. In fact, I'll act as if it doesn't matter what I do. These stories say, after this life's over, all you'll be left with is eternal punishment. You understand what, what these Old Testament stories are saying? Why, why Jude says, look, the, the Old Testament stories, they're for us today as well because they're meant to teach you you might live in a paradise now. You could live in a delightful land. You could live in a delightful city, a delightful house, or, or you may have a position of authority somewhere. You could be really significant in some place. You could be the kind of person where you say things, people act on it straight away. You could have a position of authority. And Jude is even saying, you could even enjoy the company of God's people. 
like that Exodus generation. You could be sort of hanging around with the church. But if the pattern of your life is, I will not listen to God, then he says, understand what comes next. What comes next? That's verse 7. You just look at it with me. Make sure we hear this. Remember, these are, these are strong words from a concerned friend. You feel the strength of them, but they're not said with any sense of glee. It's with real concern. Verse 7, they serve as an example for you. They're an example. God in His Word puts this before you and say, don't think this isn't real life like this. Don't pretend this isn't the way it goes. It's not a comfortable reading. It's a scary thought facing eternity with nothing but God's punishment. So again, remember why Jude's writing. He wants us to contend for the faith. The faith that leads you to Jesus who will save you. Who's come for you. The, the songs that Matt has wonderfully chosen tonight. I don't know if you've noticed all the way through the song. They're all chosen, pointing us towards the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. A faith that knows we're made right with God, not because we've done good things, not because we've done enough, but because Jesus died for us, but also a faith that says we live listening to the one who saved us. That's the pattern of genuine faith. Anything else is a fake kind. And Jude wants them to contend for the faith because verse 4, do you remember we saw this last week? He says, certain individuals have slipped in among you. They're doing the kinds of things those others in the Old Testament used to do. You see what Jude wants them to feel. If that pattern of life comes into your church, what comes next? So what do you do? Uh, two things. Uh, for us to think about this evening. Here's the first one. Beware of leaders who follow these wrong patterns. I was buying a wedding present a few years back. It's from John Lewis, very fancy. And I was buying online. Uh, and I noticed, you know when you, they ask you to input your details and there's a, a kind of click-on drop-down list of titles? And it goes uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, and Ms. and other things. And I think they've changed it now, but on this occasion, it had quite an exceptional list uh, because it continued Prince, Princess, Queen, King. And I thought, well, why not? <laughs> and even then, nobody's watching. Uh, I still felt a bit uncomfortable to put down King, so I put down Viscount. And then there was also a little link to, to tick. It, you could either have your invoice emailed to you or you could have it sent through the post. And I thought, I want it through the post. So I ticked it. And it was delightful. A few weeks later, the, the invoice came. I mean, I think I bought probably two glasses or something like that. It cost about, you know, six pounds. I'm very generous like that. But I kid you not, the letter came and began, Dear Lord Todd, thank you for your recent purchase. And I liked that. I thought, this is very good. Then I started to get worried that the police might come to my door. 
for impersonating minor royalty. But anyway, I do it. But look, I like that, Lord Todd. You'll not be fooled. Not in, not in the slightest, are you? Look, you, you wouldn't be fooled by that as if I could pass myself off as Viscount Todd. But look, you come back to this passage and you, you understand. I mean, it's laughable and it's jokey, but there's serious things where people pass, them off the wrong, pass themselves off as the wrong thing. The people Jude's warning this church about, they are passing themselves off as spiritual leaders, Christian teachers. That's what's going on. And he says, look, don't be fooled. See what he says about them. Uh, verse, actually, it's not, I put down here verse 3, but it's not verse 3. Uh, where is it? Let me find it. Um, Verse 8, just have a look at it. See what he says there in verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams. Now, notice that. Some versions will say, in the very same way, these dreamers. Why does he talk about dreams at this point? Jude writes a really kind of succinct letter. He writes it in in summary form, but they're all loaded words. It's an idea from the Old Testament. A a dreamer, dreamers, or, or a dreamer of dreams If you have that in mind and you think about Joseph with his dreams or you think about Daniel with his dreams in the Old Testament, a dreamer of dreams were often people who claimed to have messages from God. And they said the words were inspired. In the Old Testament, a few did have messages from God. Many more were false. And what what those ones did, those false ones did, was they lower the standards of God's Word. And Jude says these people follow the same pattern. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these claims of inspired insights from God, they pollute their own bodies. You see what he's saying? They they lower the standards of morality. Being a Christian, how much you drink is not an issue. Don't worry about that. Bad language, come on. Don't be prudish about sex. They just begin to lower the standards of morality. And he says as well, do you notice they reject authority? They're full of their own talk. They claim to to speak for God. They just won't do what he says. And then this next little line, which is a strange one, isn't it, where he says they they heap abuse. They heap abuse on celestial beings. That's an odd phrase. What does he mean by that? It might mean they insult angels. But I think Jude means, means something else. Again, his readers would have understood this. At the time and in the New Testament, they would have understood that when God in the Old Testament gave the Ten Commandments to his people, angels were involved in that. You see it mentioned that way in the book of Acts. Paul writes that way in Galatians. And in Hebrews as well in the New Testament, that letter talks about the law coming through angels. So I think what Jude is saying is, look, these people, they claim... They claim to have genuine access to the spiritual realm, but to live life rejecting God's Word written, which was passed on by genuine spiritual beings, is to demonstrate you hold the true spiritual realm in contempt. Does that make sense? You can ask me about that before. He said they claim, they claim to have access to the spiritual realm, but God's Word in the Old Testament, it was given through angels. And they ignore that, so that shows they hold the spiritual realm in contempt. Jude is saying this, look, if you won't listen to God's Word written, you're not really spiritual. Not in the way the New Testament understands it. 
and not in the way the Lord Jesus, who will refer to the Old Testament, understands it. If you won't listen to God's Word written, all of it, you're not really spiritual, no matter what you claim. And it makes sense of uh, the pattern Jude's showing us. Verse 4, you see what he's saying? Remember what he said last week, people who deny the lordship of Jesus. Verses 5 to 7, people who rebel against God's word. And Jude would say, beware. Beware of any kind of leader who claims spiritual kind of leadership roles, but who, who follows these wrong patterns with God's Word. And, and here's the second thing, last thing for, for this evening. Look, don't be naive about who they sound like. In verse 9, Jude tells another odd little story all about, it, it really is, this, this, this story about the archangel, and Michael, the archangel Michael and, uh, and the devil. It, again, it's not, it's not a story from, from the, the Bible, but it's, uh, there's one like it in the Bible. When, when you first read it, you might think it's from the Old Testament. There's another one like it, but not this one. But it's really a kind of story about what spotting what people are, are like. Um, this is a story although it's not from the Bible, that Jude's reader would have probably known. Jude's doing uh, what we do in lots of ways, using a familiar story to hammer home his point. See, verse 9, let me just read it out for us again. You can follow along. He says this, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to contemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. What's that about? It's a bit strange, isn't it? The dispute, that kind of dispute word, has a sense of something legal. It's like a legal dispute here. Almost like we're in a court case, passing judgment. The condemning is kind of sitting on judgment. And the gist of the story seems to be, look, Satan is doing, the devil is doing what he always loves to do, sitting on judgment. Here it is on Moses. Moses certainly did many things wrong. You know that if you read uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, but here's how I think we're to understand this. While Satan is arrogantly passing out judgment, declaring people guilty, Moses is guilty. He's a bad person. How on earth can he be forgiven? Michael the archangel won't dare to make a, a legal decision about him, Moses. He won't do that. He won't act as if he can speak with that kind of authority. He knew it was God's place to do that. If God could find a way to declare a sinner like Moses saved and forgiven, that was up to God. Michael would submit to God's word, not sit above it. And he turns to Satan and says, the Lord rebuke you for putting yourself above God's authority. Jude's saying, look, when you come across people who claim to be spiritual leaders, but what you hear is a disregard for God's Word written, or when they teach, it just always seems to be taken out of context or not really explained. Don't be naive about who they sound like. Jude's saying, who in the Bible story handles God's Word in that kind of way. 
Look, in Jude's day, if you've got that in mind, the, the pressing issue, I think we're clear on what the, the big problem is. Leaders who are disregarding God's Word, and it's beginning to impact Christians. That's what he's saying. It's coming into the church. It's impacting Christians, how they think about God, how they relate to Him. It's beginning, whether they feel it or not, to mean they deny the Lordship of Jesus, and it's impacting how they live. And there seems to be a pressing issue. There's an area where it's worked out. It was mentioned in verse 4, wasn't it? They, they turned the grace of God into a license for immorality. Verse 8, they, Jude says, they pollute their own bodies. You understand what he's meaning there. Sex is, is one of the areas where they begin to disregard God's Word. Now, you read through the Bible, and you'll know this if you've been reading it for any length of time. The Bible isn't prudish about sex. It says it's a good gift from God. It's there from the beginning. The book of Genesis, the opening chapters, yet his pattern for sex, and it is a good one, is that it's, it's within the context of marriage. One man and one woman intended to be married for life. There's all sorts of reasons for that. Jesus says, as, as he teaches in in Matthew's gospel, sex is hugely significant, and we know that. Even though at times our culture acts as if we can, we can treat sex as just a kind of leisure activity, we know that's not the case. We know it's really significant. As someone said recently, look, somebody pushes you to play tennis with them, and that's a bit weird. Someone pushes you to have sex with them, that gets a different response. Why? Because we know sex is really significant. Everybody knows that. The Bible knows that. It's serious. It's a good, good gift, and that's why it's serious as well. And because it's really significant, the Bible will say um, is to be handled in the right way. The Bible will fill out more details on that. We're not going to do that now, but it is to say that's why the Bible will say to us, adultery is massively wrong. Pornography is wrong. Sex outside God's pattern is wrong. It's damaging, and it's destructive, and it's not good. God is not a killjoy here. He's given us a good pattern. We're to listen to him. It's been fascinating. I don't know if you've followed this. I've maybe been doing this because I'm from Scotland, but it's been fascinating watching the press coverage of Kate Forbes up in Scotland, the SNP politician who's been asked about her views on, on sex and marriage. And I think, I mean, gosh, who would want to answer all those questions in the glare of the media spotlight? But I think as she's done it, she's stated those views with real honesty. She's not tried to cover them up. She's acted with integrity. I think she's spoken graciously. There's been uproar from some, but others have said, shock. Christian says she believes what the Bible has says, uh, what the Bible says, um, and what the church has taught across the world for most of history. I mean, that's true, isn't it? Now, it's important to hear this as we think about it. Because you could go a kind of wrong way on this, but th these things are important to hear. And you will know this, I'm sure, but let me say it again, um, just so we're, we're clear as a church family. Being attracted to members of the opposite sex does not mean that you're more godly. 
Being same-sex attracted, and that's been one of the things for uh, Kate Forbes has been answering questions about, being same-sex attracted does not mean you are less godly. There's all sorts of struggles uh, different people will have. The issue for all of us is, will we listen to God's Word? Will we submit ourselves to what He says? Will we trust Him? Jude's not targeting people whose life situation is complex and will take time to sort through pastorally. He is warning against leaders who want to tackle particular temptations by disregarding God's Word and denying Jesus as Lord. And he says to us, and please hear this, when you do that, what comes next? What comes next? Sobering question for the Church of England at the moment. On some of the, you might have picked up some of the, the papers they put out recently for bishops from the Church of England before General Synod. One of the papers they put out, I'm going to pop this up on the screen. They, they said this, this is one of their, this was part of their rationale for changing their views. And they put it like this, tremendous social change has reconfigured the ways in which human beings grow up and inhabit the world of adulthood. In England, for example, people stay in education longer, form long-lasting relationships later in life, and live for much longer. They are, there are changed attitude to sexual activity and the meaning of relationships. It is now increasingly rare for those who choose to marry in the church to be living apart before the wedding. Now, that's just one part of what they're saying, but as you read on the document, what the bishops are saying is, look, culture thinks differently to the Bible. And the implication is almost, as you read the documents, there's little point in saying something different back to the culture. We need to find a way to just bless and celebrate the way people live. And Jude would say, I think, in a really concerned way, who does that sound like? And what comes next? But can I say, just as we draw this to a close, some of this is difficult. I face sexual temptation. You do as well. There are areas of our identities that are complex. There are frustrations, guilt, struggles. There will have been damage done to us and also damage that we probably cause to others. If we're wanting to grow as Christians, as I know we are as a church family, we will face many difficult bits in the Bible, and at times painful questions will be asked of us. We sin in every area of life, and we sin here too. So God's Word will ask questions. But every time the light of God's Word shines on an area of sin in our lives or struggle, its light also shines beyond that to illuminate the cross of the Lord Jesus, the one who loves us and gave himself for us not to condemn us, but to rescue us, reminding us of his acceptance, his forgiveness and power to change and sustain us even in difficult struggles. Jude would say, beware of people who dismiss God's words. It might mean we avoid painful questions, but it will also mean that we miss God's grace 
in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're going to come in a moment to the Lord's Supper to share bread and wine, these visible reminders uh, of our Savior's body and blood broken and shed for us. Now, before we do that, let's have a moment for our own prayers and reflections, and then I will lead us on.